Well, uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Brand. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. It is good to be with you this morning. I'm glad you survived the snowstorm, survived the cold. You made it this morning. It's good to get to worship with you. If you're new or visiting, uh, we'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Uh, excited as well to continue our series in the Gospel of John together. If you've been with us for the past few months, we know we've been working our way through John's Gospel. Uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of John till just a little bit after Easter as we kind of time our study with John uh, with Easter time and that celebration. And so got a little bit left. We're a little bit more than halfway through our time together in John. And um, But uh, if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, it's helpful to, to, to know that one of the things we've seen throughout the, the, one of the primary thing that we've seen throughout our study in John is that, is that John's purpose for his account of Jesus' life and ministry is not just to give us more information about Jesus, but it's to help transform like a, a head-level knowledge about Jesus into a heart-level belief in him. You see, John's trying to wake people up from this kind of insufficient head-level familiarity with Jesus um, by showing them in some new and some fresh ways the reality about who Jesus really claimed that he was. He, Jesus didn't claim that he was a, a good teacher. He didn't, didn't claim that he was just like some moral guru. Uh, Jesus claimed that he was God. You see, in John's hope and John's prayer is that in seeing Jesus through maybe a new lens and taking a look at him again in a new way, that, that people who might have kind of been familiar with him and just like known just enough about him but didn't really know him, that, that their kind of lifeless head-level knowledge about Jesus, that it might finally like actually become like real, authentic, life-changing faith in him. And and so that's at the heart of what John's doing throughout his gospel. And we, we saw in the first half that the first half of John's gospel really focuses on Jesus' public ministry, he, where he spends about three years or so. John records a bunch of different events over a long period of time where, where Jesus is kind of going around and he's showing people who he is, whether that's through some of the miraculous signs that he did or through showing himself as the, kind of the fulfillment of a bunch of the feasts and festivals and a bunch of different other stuff we saw. But ultimately we saw how Jesus' kind of public ministry, it climaxes in chapter 11 and 12 in John's gospel where he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, right, showing himself to be the author of life and light and truth. And, and we saw in last week in, at the end of 12 where he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And he's doing that as this very deliberate act to affirm his identity as the Messiah. But at the same time, he's, he's riding in on a donkey because he's trying to redefine the kind of Messiah that he'd come to be. He, he hadn't come to rescue and rule by conquering his enemies and by taking power. Instead, he'd come to rescue and to rule by giving up his power and by dying in place of his enemies. And, and so with, with the public ministry of Jesus' like revelation of himself kind of come to a conclusion by the end of chapter 12, John goes on in the, in the coming next, really the second half of his gospel to describe how Jesus kind of withdraws from the crowds and, and he invests the remaining time that he has into the lives of the disciples in order to prepare them for what's about to happen to him, but also in order to kind of prepare them for the kind of life and ministry that he's calling them to lead after, after his death. It's a, it's a section of John's gospel that 
what's often referred to as the upper room discourse. And uh, over the course of the next five chapters or so, John really focuses in on Jesus' final night with his disciples and the conversations that he has with them in an attempt to prepare them for life and ministry after his death. And, and so we'll be in those couple of chapters for a couple of weeks, but it all begins in chapter 13, when on the eve of his death, Jesus performs this really shocking act of service for his disciples by washing their feet. And we're going to talk a lot more about what that means and what's going on there. But, but for those of you who are maybe might be familiar with the passage, I think it can be really easy for us to kind of tend to just look at this passage as like, wow, this is like this it's really a poignant example of humble service, right? It's, it's just something we should aspire to, something we should really try really hard to imitate. And it is that. Jesus tells us himself. He does it as an example that we should follow. But but it's, it's more than just an example. In fact, it, it actually has to be more than that. Because if it's just an example, uh, it's just an example that crushes you. Because the reality is that I think most Christians would agree that serving others is really good. Like, that, like that's a right and noble thing to do. Like right up until the moment where like you get asked to do something that you think is beneath you. Right? Or right up until that point where, where that person that you're needing to serve, you're not sure they're really worthy of that sacrifice. Right? right up to that point when, when your service goes unnoticed or unappreciated or unreciprocated, like we're all in until like it doesn't really feel like it's worth it. It really doesn't feel like it pans out for us in the end. And yet serving people who not only don't appreciate and don't reciprocate, but who actively demean and disown you, that's the example Jesus sets for us this morning. And that's what he's calling us to, right? So the reality is, is if if you if it's just an example, it's just one we endlessly and hopelessly fail to follow and do not meet up. So we need it to be more than that. In fact, the truth is that we need the power and the motivation to do it. We, we don't just need to know the what of following Jesus' example. So you need to know the how. And the good news is John shows you that, and I can't wait to show it to you this morning. And what, what, I wanna, what, I wanna, what, you, what I want you to see this morning as we study this famous passage is that the only way that you and I, the only way that we actually have the power and the motivation right, to follow Jesus' example of humble and servant love, right, the only way you do it is when you see first his demonstrated love for you as he humbles himself and as he serves you. It's the only way it happens. So I can't wait to show that to you this morning. It's so good. Let's, we'll pray. We'll dive in together. Jesus, thanks so much for you. Thanks for our time together in your word, and God, we're just grateful that as we come to study it this morning, uh, we're not just dependent on like some incredible thing I've come, like I've worked really hard to produce, but Jesus, our hope is set on you and on your word. And so, God, I ask that you might, as we study it this morning, that you might be gracious to just keep showing us more about who you are, Jesus, and all that you've done for us, that you might fill us with uh, just like an and awe and a gratitude, Jesus, for all that you've done, and that it might empower us to live lives of joyful, humble love and service of others. Um, God, not to get something from them or from you, but in response to all you've done. And so uh, I can't make that happen, but you can. And I pray that you would, God, for our good, and so that people might see you in us. We pray. Amen.
All right, well, this morning we're going to be in chapter 13, and we're going to be really focusing our time together as we study on the first 17 verses of the, of the passage, which is like the story about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. But I'm going to read the whole passage to you because um, I think it really helps to like, get the full picture on like, what Jesus is really doing and like, the, like, the, the gravity of who he's serving in the midst of the passage. So we'll begin this way. It begins in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only wash their feet, but, those, but the whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant's greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. I'm not referring to all of you, for I know those I have chosen, but this is to fill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. And I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. And one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John's way of describing himself in the gospel, uh, was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter mentioned this to the disciple, and he asked, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I'll give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. And so Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. And since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to go buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God's glorified in him. If God's glorified in him, then God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little while longer, and you'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, 
Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? For very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now, like I said in the beginning, the most important thing for us to see in the passage this morning is not just like the what of imitating Jesus that we're called to, but it's, it's the how. Right? How do we imitate the kind of servant love that we see Jesus demonstrating? But before you get to the how, you got, you got to see the what uh, we're being called to imitate. And spoiler alert, it's not actually washing other people's feet. Right? Some of you are incredibly relieved that that's not the direction that we're going this morning, right? See, Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're about to sit down for this meal, their final meal together. And everything's been prepared, everything's ready, right? They got the meal, they got the food, they got the place, they got like all the stuff is ready except one thing, right? The host of the meal, they hasn't provided someone to wash everyone's feet. And that's a problem for a couple of reasons, right? If you were here a few weeks back, we talked about how uh, feet were even nastier back then than they are today, right? There's no paved roads, there, there's no, there's no sh- closed-toed shoes, right? It's just like everybody's walking around in sandals, it's like a thousand degrees all the time, right? It's the Middle East. And so people's feet were just dirty and nasty and gross, right? Top it all off, in that culture, the dinner table was real low and you kind of ate in this reclined position. So like when you're eating a meal, like your feet are in other people's business, right? Like it's, it's not like they're just hidden under the table and nobody's bothered by anything. Like they're right there, right? And so to remedy this obvious issue, right, the host of the meal, they would, they'd be responsible for washing uh, the people's feet, or more specifically, they'd be responsible for hiring somebody to do that job, right? As you can imagine, uh, it was not a coveted job, right? It's not one that people were excited about doing, right? The, it was one that the servant with the least tenure and the least status and the least standing would be, they'd be the ones that'd be assigned to, to that job, right? Uh, because it wasn't just gross, it was actually incredibly humiliating and demeaning to touch somebody else's feet in that culture. In fact, the, the Jewish rabbis at the time, they, they kind of taught people that the only people you could make do it were, were uh, Gentile slaves. That's the only people you could force to do that job. And yet what we see happening here, right, is that Jesus himself, he willingly takes on this role, right? The one who's seated at the head of the table gets up from the table. He takes off his outer clothes, his jacket, right? He wraps a towel around his waist. He pours some water into a basin and begins to wash his disciples' feet and dry them with a towel. You've got to imagine at this point, right, the disciples' jaws like are just on the floor, right? They're absolutely on the floor, right? They all knew that somebody needed to do that job, right? Like they were, it's not that they were unaware that their feet were gross, right? It's not that they're like middle schoolers who didn't know they had BO, right? They, they understood that like it needed, it was a problem, right? And yet none of them even considered doing that. And absolutely no one would have imagined that their teacher, their rabbi, their Lord, that Jesus would do it, right? If Jesus asked one of them to do it, they would have thought he was joking with them. They wouldn't have even taken him seriously. And yet Jesus willingly takes on that role. 
Right? And you, you have to see it here. He doesn't do it begrudgingly, right? He's not like, okay, guys, uh, we've been working on the whole servant thing for like three years-ish now, right? We've had a number of lessons about this. We've been like working through it. Right? I was hoping that one of you might like get the hint that that's what we, somebody should do it, right? That's not what's happening here. Like Jesus isn't just like angstily taking on this role of a servant. Verse 2, it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them until the end. The older version of the NIV says it this way, he showed them the full extent of his love. It's the kind of love that Jesus is demonstrating for his disciples here. It's not just like some fleeting feeling of affection. A word that John uses throughout the whole passage is the Greek word agape. Right? We have one word for love. In Greek, they had a bunch of them. And agape was the highest, purest, most beautiful kind of love there was. It's the kind of love that's not based on perceived worthiness or reciprocal benefit. It's, it's based on you, the, like the inherent value, the intrinsic value you place on someone. And it's the kind of love that's not demonstrated with words, right? It's the kind of love that's demonstrated with selflessness and acts of love and devotion to people. See, Jesus is showing his disciples the kind of love he has for them as he serves them in this incredibly humble way. And he does it, we see in verse 15. He does it not only to show them his love, but he does it to set an example for them, right? He wants them to follow him, to do as he has done for them. He wants them to do it for one another. Right, it's this incredible example, right? This incredible model that we see of this humble, sacrificial, servant-hearted love. Right? And what happens a lot of times when this passage gets taught, right, is that we talk, we emphasize, like, wow, Jesus is like really high and he's going really low, and, and there's this incredible act of service, right? And so, like, if Jesus did it, then you and I, we just like we really we really need to be do it. We got to aspire to that kind of service, right? And we got to work really hard at it. And if that's where the passage ends, all you have is just dead, lifeless religion. That's all you have, right? You have no motivation and no power. All you have is duty and obligation. That's all you got. And for a little while, maybe out of guilt, because you just you feel like, well, I guess I should be doing it, right? Maybe for a little while you'll choose to serve others, right? Or you might choose to serve in order to curry favor with people or to try to kind of earn some kind of imaginary bonus brownie points with God that don't actually exist. And you might do it for a little while, but you will certainly not be characterized by it and you will absolutely not do it out of love. You see... And you will certainly never choose to serve people who you do not think are worthy of sacrificial love. Like Peter, who we found at the end of the passage, right? Jesus already knew when he was sitting at his feet washing them, would deny and disown him, not, not once. Not, not a bunch of years down the road, but three times that night. Or like Judas, who was literally about to leave this meal and go betray him for money. Those are the people Jesus serves. Those are the ones John tells us he did to show them the fullest extent of his love. I don't know about you, but that just really struck me this week. 
It doesn't say that like Jesus, he washed a couple of the disciples' feet as this like broad picture and this example of like, hey, like I'm doing this act and therefore you should do it. It says he, he washed all of them, all of their feet, including the people who are literally just about to betray and disown him. And in love for them, he humiliates himself in front of them to show them how great a value they have to him, how much they're worth in his eyes. And to call them to a life of loving him and serving others in that kind of a way. And so the question you have to ask, right? How do you do that? Right? Yeah, I could like volunteer in nursery every once in a while, right? Like, that's great. How do you serve people in love who you know not only don't reciprocate it, but who go the other direction? How do you, how do you become characterized by that kind of of a love for others and a service for others. How do you do that? Well, John tells us, thankfully, he shows us how you do it. He doesn't just tell us the what, he tells us the how. And it begins, we see in in the early verses in John, John chapter 13, it begins by knowing who you are already. See, the Bible's clear that we're not defined by the things that we do, but the truth is, is that what you do and the way you do it, it tells a whole lot, it reveals a whole lot about who you think you are, and about how secure you are in the identity you have. Right, Jesus knew who he was. Chapter or Verse 1, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God, and that he was returning to God. See, Jesus was completely aware of who he was. He was completely aware of his sovereign authority and his heavenly origins and his coming destiny, right? And it's out of that confidence that he voluntarily like, makes himself lowly as a servant and washes the disciples' feet, right? Like He already knew who he was, and he knew what the Father thought about him. And so he was free to serve others in a way that would have been culturally humiliating because his identity is not on the line. what other people think about him is irrelevant. To Jesus' thinking and his actions, it stands in such sharp contrast with the self-seeking insecurity of the disciples. None of them who were even willing to pick up the towel and take Jesus' place. John doesn't mention this specifically, but if you read the Gospel of Luke, what you find is that literally at this meal, probably right before Jesus gets up to, to serve them in this way, The disciples, I'm not joking with you, they're literally in a fight with one another because they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest and who's going to get to sit next to Jesus in heaven. Like that's the like that's their conversation. Like that's the thing they're worried about, that's the thing they're arguing with one another about, that's the thing that matters to them. And yet Jesus, right, the one who is actually the greatest. He gets up from the table and he makes himself the lowest because he knows who he is. See, imitating the humble servant love that Jesus demonstrated, that is only possible if you already know who you are to him. That's the only way you do it. If you are secure in who he says you are to him already, 
if you're not trying to manufacture some identity for yourself, if you know who he has said you are to him, if his opinion of you is the thing that is clear and is supreme in your heart, like you can't do it other than that. See, the problem is, is that you and I, we live in this world that tells us like you have to manufacture your own identity. Right? And every party, like, you've you got to make one for yourself instead of rest in the one that God gives you. And what happens is when you do that, like, there's only two real options, right? When, when you're trying to manufacture an identity for yourself, and you come face to face with Jesus' example here and his, his call, right? You come face to face with that. The only options you're going to have is you're either going to reject it, right? Because you think it's beneath you, right? Like, you are too busy. You have got too much, way more important stuff. Like, you, you're out on that. Like the disciples did here. None of them does the job. None of them try to take the towel from Jesus. Peter's the only one who even put protests. Right? Like they know it's beneath Jesus. But like, surely it's beneath them. Right? Like they're not lowly servants. Right? They're his 12 chosen disciples. Right? They got to be near the top of the org chart, not the bottom. And yet, what they fail to understand. Right, is that Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Mark chapter 10, Jesus calls his disciples together. He says to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, he says. For instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for men. See, the only way you embody that kind of servant attitude in love for others is like when you know your identity is not on the line. When Jesus' opinion of you, when God's opinion of you and your status with him is just sure and solid, it frees you. So that's option one, right? Right. If you're trying to manufacture an identity, option one is like you just reject that calling because like it's beneath you. But the other option is that you you just do it with really messed up motives, right? You'll serve God and you'll serve others in order to get something from them, right? Whether that's a praise or approval or validation or honor or significance, and just like I'm not trying to be mean, but spoiler alert: like if you're trying to serve people to get something from them, that's not actually called service; that's called manipulation, right? It's not the same thing, and we like like to think that it is because we we really enjoy looking at the outside of things. God's always after the heart. His letter to the Colossians, Paul exhorts Christians this way. He says, Obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Do it not when their eyes are on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for Him. Not. Not for people. So the reality is that when we try to serve others, in order to get something from them. Not only is that like not service at all, but what we're doing is just like we're missing the real identity we have as his servants. We're giving it up to try to serve people and get something from them. 
See, the truth is if we're not careful and we don't check our motives often, it's just like really easy to fool ourselves into believing that the stuff that we're doing is for God when really it's just like to try to get some approval and try to get some significance or control or praise or power or prestige. It's not for Him. It's really for us. And so when we fail to rest in who we are in Christ, who, who Jesus proves that we are to Him and the identity He gives us as His beloved people, what happens is like you'll constantly be battling this need to find importance and significance somewhere else. Right, but when you base your worth and your identity on him and his relationship with you, what happens is like not only does that, like it frees you up. Not only from needing something from people, but it frees you up to actually serve them. You're not a slave to people anymore. You get to actually be a servant to them. The only way that happens right, is if you get your identity from him. See, but secondly requires that you understand the magnitude of his service for you. Verse 12 says it this way. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, he returned to his place, and he asked them, do you understand what I have done for you? He doesn't say, do you understand what I've done? He doesn't just say, hey, I set this broad, vague example for you, and I want you to follow it. He says, do you understand what I have done for you. You call me teacher and Lord, rightly so, that's what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's. I have set an example for you to do as I have done for you. For very truly, I tell you, no servant's greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. See, the reality is that Jesus is the highest at that table. He is the highest at every table. Right? He is the king and creator of the universe. He is the author of all light and life and truth. He's the one who can heal the sick and raise the dead with a word from his mouth. And yet the highest of highs makes himself the lowest of lows, and he does it for you. Philippians, Paul writes, he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, who being in very nature God didn't consider equality with him something to be used to his own advantage, rather made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, seeing that reality transformed these, these, these like selfish disciples. Right? They're at this meal this night and they're fighting about which one of them is the greatest. And then when you read all of their letters in the New Testament, you find is there is an altogether different priority. Right? They, the identity, the title, they all give themselves universally, most often, the title of servant. Right? Paul could have referred to himself as the apostle to the Gentiles, the, like specially appointed by God. Right? Peter was an elder in the church. He saw thousands of people converted by his sermons. Right? He could have described himself that way. Right? John, in this gospel, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple, the one who Jesus loved. James and Jude could have leaned on their brotherhood with Jesus. They don't. 
All of them emphasize, all of them highlight their identity as servants. They begin all of their letters, Paul, Timothy, James, Jude, John, Peter, servants. Servants of Jesus the King. Why do they do that? When, where once they were just so desperately clawing with one another to get some kind of significance, why are they so free to call themselves servants and make themselves low? Why? You see, because they saw that Jesus had proved who they were to him already by serving them and by dying for them. And so they were free to embrace their calling as servants because their master who was greater than them had proven his love for them and selflessly served them first. See, they had the power, their identity in Christ, and they had the motivation, Christ's service for them. John tells us there's one more thing that they had as well. They knew that there was life at the end. They knew there was a reward there. Verse 17, Jesus tells them, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Right? That word that's translated as blessed, it means glad, happy, joyful. It's not like she's saying you'll be rich if you do it. He says you'll have life if you do it. That's where life is found. One pastor puts it this way, he says, Jesus is telling us that the deepest joys in life are not when people are hailing you in your status, but when they are helped by you in, their, in your service. You see, Jesus is not after dutiful worker bees. Like, that's not the goal. Right? He wants to bless you. He wants your joy. He wants you to have life. And he knows that the only way to real life is not when you live for yourself, but it's when you live for him and the good of others. It's through humble service. You know, we live in a world where everyone's trying to climb the ladders, but Jesus, in love for you, is telling you the way up is down. And the way to life is to give it up for others. And the way to joy is to seek the joy of others. And Jesus doesn't just tell you that. Like he shows you that. He proves it. It's not like, hey, do what I say, not what I do. Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. How do you follow his example? How do you follow an example to selflessly, sacrificially love those who are hard to do it for? You know who he says you are, and you see all he's done for you. That's how you do it. Remembering him, reminding ourselves about who he is and all that he's done for us. That's why we take this part of like why we take communion every week. Because it's just so easy for us to forget like all that Jesus has done on our behalf and who he was. And so we take communion as a reminder. Right? Not because it changes our status with God, not because it changes our standing with him. Like we take communion as a reminder of all that he did for us. And so if you put your trust in Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord, or if you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There's a table in the back on the left and on the right. You can dip the bread and the juice that way. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out what it means to follow him, and if like this whole like being a servant thing is even something like you're like ready to sign up for, 
And I said, I want you to know you're welcome here. I'm like, hold off on taking communion. Like, God's not after religious rituals, and he's not after going through the motions. He's after your heart. So as we sing, and as we worship God, as we remember the gospel together in song, wherever you're at this morning, I want to encourage you to talk with God. Some of you are here this morning and you are like, you're living your life in this desperate attempt to try to manufacture an identity for yourself. And so when you hear Jesus' call to live as a servant, right, you think, well, you know, maybe serving him, I'll consider it. Serving others, no, I'm out. Right? It's the last thing that you want to do. It feels beneath you, it feels diminishing. And again, I want to invite you to look at, back at him. Right, to see the highest of highs becoming the lowest of lows, not just in general, but for you. For you. See, but others of you are here, and you're not trying to reject that call to be a servant. Like You, you are trying really hard to be a servant. The problem is, is that you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And it's not out of a love for God and a love for others but you're just trying, like, desperately trying to get something from God or something from people because you've forgotten that God's already given you everything in Jesus through faith in him. Or you've forgotten that whatever people can give you will never be enough. And the invitation is that you might rest in who Jesus has proved you are to him on the cross so that you might joyfully serve him. You may joyfully serve him and others even when they are not worthy of it and even when they don't notice and don't appreciate and don't reciprocate because you know that that's exactly the moment when Jesus chose to serve you. Not when you had all your crap together, not when you really loved him, not when you were serving him with your best, but when you were just like Judas and you were willing to trade him for anything. That's when he served you. That's when he gave himself for you. So let his undeserved and unmerited and humble servant love for you, let it transform your heart. Let it change you from the inside out. Let it fill you up with a sense of value and significance and worth that cannot be taken away so that you can choose to lay your life down for the good of others. The only way it happens, the only way you get to that kind of a, characterized by that kind of service and love for others is when you know who you are to him and when you know all he's done for you. Let's pray. King Jesus, we are so grateful this morning that in love for the disciples and in love for us, you, the great king and creator of everything, made yourself lower than everyone. And you took the form of a servant, one who was rejected, refused, one who, one who was pushed to the outskirts. And you did that for us, knowing we would treat you that way so that we might see you for who you are and that we might respond not out of duty and obligation, but out of love for you. And so, God, we pray you might empower us as your people to know who we are to you, proven in the cross, and to know all you've done for us on the cross. And so be full of value and worth and significance that frees us to give our lives for the good of others and for your glory. We pray.